Well, good morning. I trust that you're again joining me uh, in your Bibles in Galatians chapter 2. We will be finishing out this chapter this morning. And as we do that, we're going to hear Paul finishing out the, uh, the thought that he has begun here several verses ago. Now, we heard him last week make some definitive statements about the faithful Jew in his time. He told us what the faithful, the believing in Christ Jew has now done. And we sort of pictured it in this way last week, if you were here. We said that what the faithful Jew has done is he has walked away from John the Baptist now that Christ has come. He's walked away from John the Baptist and walked to the one that John the Baptist was, uh, was pointing him to in his entire ministry. The believing Jew has put his faith in Christ. And so what we, all, what we saw last week is that he is now self-consciously relating to God through his faith in Christ as opposed to relating to God through the law. Paul's going to finish this out uh, this morning and speak to some of the consequences of this as well. And in doing that, he's going to put on the hat of a debater uh, or a lawyer. Paul is going to be um, doing what he does in many places in his writings, and that is to use even a technical official tactic here. This, this way of arguing had a name even back in his own time. This is Paul engaging in what we call refutation. There's a way to do this that, that he follows, and we're going to watch him walk through this refutation this morning in verses 17 to 21. His statement here will come in four pieces, and we'll walk through it uh, like this. So we're going to hear the refutation itself in verse 17. You see that that verse ends with this statement, certainly not. There's the refutation. There's the claim that he's making. Uh, he'll follow that up with two pieces of evidence. You could say he follows up his refutation with exhibit A and exhibit B. Exhibit A is in verse 18. Exhibit B is verses 19 and 20. And then he wraps up his statement here in a conclusion in, in verse 21. So it's very easy to follow him as he's going through this. Let's begin by reading. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And as we did last week, I'm going to read from verse 15 down to verse 21. And this is from the English Standard Version. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And here starts our new text this morning. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we begin this morning from the outset seeing the uh, claim he's going to be refuting. And it's important for us to understand in verse 17, uh, what of this is he refuting and what is he not refuting? So look again at verse 17. He said, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And his answer, certainly not. Now, in the question here, he's continuing to point to the Jew-Gentile division that he's been talking about here uh, in this section. He already made clear uh, something about sinners in verse 15. Do you remember that? He made clear that the Jews had a particular use of the term sinner. He said that we ourselves are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. And we saw last week he's not making the claim or the assumption that Jews are sinless and Gentiles are sinners. He's doing what Jews did then. They have understood something about a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile before the coming of Christ. And the way that they spoke about that as Jews is they used this word sinner, Gentile sinner. So this is what he's speaking to here in verse 17 in his question about sinners. You could paraphrase it. It's helped me to to think of it in this way. Maybe it will help you. Uh, Here's what it seems like he's saying in verse 17. This would be a paraphrase. But if our endeavor, that is the... uh, Believing Jew, if our endeavor to be justified in Christ has resulted in us placing ourselves on the same plane as the Gentiles, does that make Christ a servant of sin? Gentiles have been outside of the sanctified, set-apart community of God and thus have held this title of sinner for 15 hundred years. And this title is theirs because they're outside of the covenant community that God has set up. If what Paul said in verse 15 is right, then that means that privileged Jews are now approaching God's throne in the same way that believing Gentiles now do. It puts them on par with Gentiles. And in the eyes of some, that would mean that Christ's ministry is tantamount to taking a group of sanctified people and putting them into the unsanctified category. Do you see why the question would arise, and apparently did arise, why else would he be dealing with it? This is why the question would arise, well, if what you're saying is right, then is Christ a servant of sin here? Is he perpetuating, is the result of what he's done, some sort of an increase in sin in the world? And the refutation comes at the end of the verse. He he says this in the most strong way that his language lets him say it. It's translated in other uh, places or other versions, things like, God forbid, or may it never be. It's this sort of thing. Um, I like those ways of translating this because they, it seems to me they convey some emotion in a way, at least in my mind, that certainly not, certainly not doesn't have quite the same emotion behind it as God forbid does. 
one commentator wrote about this expression that the emotion in it uh, shows, and this is its intention, is to show that in the mind of the one speaking, the idea expressed in the objection is ethically or theologically monstrous. I don't get ethically monstrous from certainly not so much. I do get ethically monstrous from God forbid. So I, I'm going to think about it that way. This is in Paul's mind. It's abhorrent to him to suggest that Christ would be a servant of sin, could be a servant of sin. And it ought to be abhorrent to us, too. Now, what exactly is he refuting here, though, in verse 17? It's not the initial claim that he brings up that was incorrect. We, too, he rightly says, were found to be sinners in this way that he's speaking. Before God's righteous requirements, as we're standing before them, uh, we find ourselves to be in no advantageous situation in and of ourselves, being physically Jewish people, when you compare us to the Gentiles. The Mosaic Covenant had put me, if I'm a Jew, had put me into an advantageous situation in this life. It's, the, it's called covenants of promise. I'm exposed to the promises that I am to believe on. And that's an advantage. But Paul's been talking about the realization he's come to that justification is only found through faith in Christ. And if that's true, then I must do what any Gentile must do and may do. I must come to God humbly pleading the work of another, the work of my substitute, the work of the Lord Jesus. So Paul's beef here in this refutation is the false conclusion that that means that Christ is then a servant of sin. That conclusion is not only wrong, it is offensive to Paul. Here's the argument that he's making, and this is what the rest of this passage is going to be concerned with. The work Christ has accomplished serves sin in no way. The work he has accomplished serves sin in no way. This is what he sets about then to fight for in verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, we find exhibit A. Uh, it's, it's not hard to see who he's directing our attention to here in verse 18. Uh, let me reread it here. Look at verse 18. It says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, he, is, he is now dealing very directly with the position of the Judaizers. You remember, the Judaizers are the ones who have been stirring up all of this conflict. That's why some people think that, uh, that Paul is no longer quoting himself talking to Peter any longer. He's shifted back to the main overarching issue of the Judaizers' claims. It may be that he's still talking to Peter, but Peter was, was acting in accord with the Judaizers' position, and so it would fit. But either way, this is what he's, this is what he's exposing here in verse 18 a fatal flaw of the Judaizer's thinking. Now remember, Judaizer is not the same thing as unbelieving Jew. They're different categories. A Judaizer is someone who has claimed to come to Christ for his salvation, who has claimed the name of Jesus as his Savior, yet is trying to insist that uh, we must maintain the Old Covenant distinctions. The Judaizers are a Christ-plus-law group. And they are arguing 
on these points. Yes, Christ is the Savior. But look, Paul, look, Peter, if you say that the result of his work was a downgrade of a previously sanctified people, the Jews, to the level of the unsanctified, Gentiles, then you make Christ out to be a minister of sin. Especially in, when you think of sin in terms of defilement and purity. No, it must be the opposite, see? It must be that what he does in his work is he lifts Gentiles up to the sanctified level of the Jews. That's what he does. And in order for that to happen, well, they must participate in the law, which is what has set them apart in the first place. And this is where Paul's argument begins, and it's so powerful to see what he does in verse 18 here with evidence with exhibit A, and in 19 and 20 with exhibit B. Uh, they are not connected to each other. They are two separate pieces of his argument. Here's what he's going to ask. Tell me, did those who came to Christ come by means of the law covenant? Or was this righteousness we have received from Christ, was this righteousness displayed apart from the law? As he's going to say in Romans 3.21. And you'll notice this is exactly where he's going next week. The first verse of chapter 3, this is where he's going in this. So Paul says, if you, if you had to walk away from the law to find this righteousness, but then you say you have to walk back to the law to be saved. And see, he uses here in verse 18 a really good analogy to show the spot that they are stuck in with their line of reasoning. Here's his analogy. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I've torn something down and now I'm rebuilding it, I was either a transgressor then or I'm a transgressor now. If it was right for me to tear it down then, then I'm transgressing now in rebuilding it. If I was wrong to tear it down before so that I'm doing a good thing now, in rebuilding it, well, then that means I was a transgressor back then. So, Judaizer, tell me, were you in sin when you departed from the law to come to Christ? Or are you in sin now as you return to the law? It must be one or the other. And thus, your position proves you to be a transgressor. You show yourself to be a transgressor in the way that you are approaching this addition sentence, this Christ plus law if you want to talk about being a servant of sin, that is to say, operating in such a way as to force the increase of sin, well, these Jesus plus law Judaizers have themselves in a situation where sin is absolutely inevitable. And it's a complete turning of the tables on the Judaizers and their argument. And you can just hear the effectiveness of this Paul in his uh, in his way of forcing a rephrase of the consideration. He's not going to go onto their ground and try to argue. He's going to question the foundation of what they are arguing. And he's going to say, what happened when we came to Christ? We'll see this in even more detail next, next week. Now that's a hit against the opposition. Verses 19 and 20, exhibit B, uh, are much more of a direct uh, defense of his position. Uh, he's going to make a statement in verse 19, and then he's going to explain it in verse 20. Look, at, look again at verse 19. 
He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, there's two pieces of this that we need to think carefully about. He says that as a Jew, he died to the law in order to live to God. But the other piece is what he said at the beginning, that he did that through the law. What does that mean? What does it mean that he died to the law in order to live to God? And what does it mean that that happened through the law? Those are the two pieces that we need to understand. And I want us to see this morning that the point of both of those pieces is to point entirely to Christ and the effect of his person and work. Let's skip the opening phrase first, through the law. Let's go to the rest of it to begin. He says that he died to the law so that he might live to God. In a sense, his point here is equally simple uh, as what his point was in verse 18. I cannot be guilty of a sin regarding the law if I have died to the law. I'm not even eligible for the accusation. If I've died to the law, there is no condemnation of the law that I'm to be held accountable to. And this, this sort of opens the door on what is one of the biggest themes that span Paul's writings. It's the theme of our union with Christ. What does it mean for us to be united to Christ? And one of the things that we see here and that he will say over and over again is that Believer, in being united to your Lord, you have been united to him in his death. When Christ died under the law, not only did he die having kept the law perfectly, and he was never defiled, never unclean, never disobedient to the commands of God, but furthermore, when he died, he was released from that law because a covenant only binds a covenant member as long as they live. You might want to look over for just a moment to Romans chapter 7. We've referenced this in past weeks. But the example that he gives in Romans when he brings this up is the example of marriage. Paul just said in Romans 6 that believers had died to sin. And now in Romans 7, he says believers have died to the law. Listen to what he says in the first four verses there. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers. See? It's like that. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Paul says in verse 19 of our passage this morning that he has died to the law. And he finishes that thought by saying that that death to the law has allowed for something. His death to the law has allowed him to live to God. He says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Do you hear the purpose statement there the, the, or the result of that death to the law? There was a reason that that death needed to happen. He's going to talk in the next chapter 
of Galatians about the law as a guardian. And that's a very, it's going to be a very helpful analogy for him to flesh out further what we're talking about here. The, the purpose of the law in its preparatory function, in its temporary nature, the law is a guardian leading us to Christ. I thought of a maybe much less sophisticated analogy, if you'll allow me to make another analogy. I don't know why this occurred to me, but it, it was helpful a little bit. Maybe it will be helpful to you. I thought of a fertilized chicken egg. So it's fertilized chicken egg. There's a baby chick growing in that egg. And that egg, that shell, that egg is serving a very significant purpose, isn't it? It's serving the purpose of preservation for that chick and nourishment for that chick. But here's the question. How is that chick ever going to come to live the chicken life? I mean, the life that God has intended for the chicken. How is that chick going to come to truly live as a chicken? It will only come to do that if the day comes that it breaks out of the egg. So dying to that eggshell, if you will, actually lets that chick live the life that God intended for it to live. I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now this will help us so much as we're, because he's going to speak in some ways that talk about this as a progression in the life of God's people. That's why he uses the terms like guardian or tutor to lead us to. One thing remains in terms of putting his statement here in verse 19 into focus as a whole, and that is we need to bring into this now um, what he said at the beginning of the verse. So we just finished thinking about his statement, I died to the law in order to live to God. What does it mean when he says that he did that through the law? Through the law, he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. How was that done through the law? I mean, that's his direct explanation here in verse 19. If you're like me, that doesn't just immediately clear things up for you. Now, we, we can get help uh, in a number of ways. Uh, before we even look at this context, we can get help from the fact that Paul talks about this reality in several places. And he uses other language to describe what he's getting at. So that can be helpful to us. Just listen to, uh, I'll read two of these to you. Uh, Romans 7, 4, we just looked at this. You also have died to the law through, uh, that's just what we have here. Through the law, I died to the law. What does he say in Romans 7, 4? You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Interesting. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And I'll just pause there. I don't think he's using the word law there exactly like he is here. I don't think he's talking about the Mosaic covenant as a whole. I think he's talking about commandments, which uh, hold us accountable to God, reveal to us our unfaithfulness to God. Uh, but the Mosaic covenant is under that umbrella. Notice what he says next. The power of sin is the law. What's the solution to this problem? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there, the problem is resolved through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice that in both of those statements, the essential element in this death to the law 
is union with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's there in both of these. In our text, in verse 19, he simply says, through the law, I died to the law. But all we have to do, as is so often the case with a, with a puzzling moment, uh, all we have to do is just keep reading. Look at what he says in the very next words here. He goes on immediately to spell out this how question. How have I died to the law? Right Through the law, I died to the law. What do you mean? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. My union to Christ in his death on that cross. Is the means of everything for us. If I'm not united to Christ. But if I'm united to Christ, I'm united with him in his death. I have been crucified with him. And the death I must die, I died with him. And I've died that death so that I might live to God. The life that I must live. It all hangs on my union with Christ. I mean, do you see why we, we do not make little of this fact? That our whole identity as Christians must be in that fact? I mean, that must dictate how I think about myself, how I define myself, the purpose that I'm on the planet for, the reason that he has shown mercy to me, the means of all of my hope. This is my union with Christ. We'll see this again in the next chapter. He'll say in Galatians 3.13, speaking of this union and in reference to the law, he'll say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ bore the curse of the law and exhausted its penalty on his people's behalf. F.F. Bruce will say to this end, The law has no further claim on him who in death satisfied its last demand. And the believer who has died with Christ is similarly discharged from the law. So maybe now you can see a little bit more clearly what Paul's saying in reference to his refutation. Christ cannot be viewed as serving to transgress the law through me because I have actually died to the law through him. When he died, I die. Now then what does that mean about Paul's life now? I mean, he doesn't just stop at words about the death. He says here that he died to the law so that I might live to God. And he's, he's beginning now a theme that's going to, I mean, you think we're talking about a, a lot about the law right now in some of these weeks? And we are. There's a certain uh, young person among us who, who counted the number of times we said the word law last week, and it was a pretty high number. I won't tell you that number. But uh, we're talking about that a lot right now. There's going to come places as we're in the book of Galatians where we're going to be talking a great deal about the consequences of these things. And we're going to say things like fruit, fruit of the Spirit, life, freedom. Those will be the words to count in the weeks to come. And he brings this up here. The result of this death to the law was so that he might live to God. Now that actually means we need to adjust our language a little bit here. I think I even used the expression last week 
of walking away from the law. And there's a sense in which that, that can be right because it is a matter of a self-conscious decision to realize the law's limitations and to come to Christ instead. Right? But that's not the way Paul talks about the end of his relationship to the law. He doesn't talk in terms of walking away from the law. No, he died. That's what happened. Paul, what happened? You and the law. I thought this was going well. I died. And in that death, he was released from the law. Now, I'll just say quickly, as quickly as I can here, um, because the thought occurred to me, well, we're all Gentiles, I think, in this room. Should we be thinking about this so entirely as a Jewish thing? And let me just say, uh, this clearly applies to believing Jews in a unique way. Those who had put themselves under the law. The Bible never speaks of Gentiles as being under the law. Never. Gentiles were under the law. Uh, Jews were under the law, excuse me. Um, so there is, a, there is a unique sense in which this applies to believing Jews who are trusting in Christ. But that does not mean that it has no tie, no application to Gentiles as well. We have said before, prior to Christ's coming, Gentile believers in Yahweh would have needed to put themselves under the law in order to have access to the promises, the pictures, the shadows of Christ. For those Gentiles, that is no longer there. That need is no longer there for those who would believe in the one true God. Now, let's move on, though, to verse 20. And let's hear the whole of verse 20 all at once, because we've already looked at the first sentence. Verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the result of this death to the law, he said in verse 19, is that he now lives to God. And in verse 20, he's going to tell us several things in this respect. Several things about this new life that he now lives. Here's one thing he tells us. He tells us the source of this new life. The source of this life is Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is the explanation for the presence and the growth and the displays of this new life that he's talking about. Now Christ himself uh, in, a very, in this unique way, the second person of the Trinity, the one who took on flesh and died on the cross. Uh, he and his person and his work is responsible for this life. But one thing that's important to understand as we worship a Trinitarian God, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that there is a real way in which the works of the persons are inseparable from one another. And I think that that's in play in the way he puts this here. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit's work in a believer. Christ is present with us through the Holy Spirit, who is often called in Scripture the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8 9 equates two names for the Holy Spirit. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. They will use this sort of language interchangeably. We all understand that the Holy Spirit is the one in the Old Testament 
leading and inspiring the prophets to say what they say. But 1 Peter 1.11 says that it's the spirit of Christ in them that was speaking to God's people. We're used to, or we should be used to this sort of language. There is an inseparableness between the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. So, look at the statement here in verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What he means is that the new life of the risen Christ is at work in me, as the Holy Spirit works to enliven Being a part of this church, I will trust that you understand well that when you came into this world, you were alive in one way and very much dead in another way. I trust that you understand that Ephesians chapter 2 makes clear that you were born dead in your trespasses and sins, even as you drew breath physically. And I trust that you understand when you think about physical life and this spiritual life, that the second one, spiritual life, this life or death status is the one that matters. You think dying physically matters? Well, of course it does in a very real way, but not when we're talking like this. Being dead physically is quite temporary. And it itself has no spiritual consequences. It's not a sin to die. But if you're dead spiritually, that means that you are separated from God. I mean, that means that you're an enemy of God if you do not possess this life. And it's in the realm of that sort of life, the life that has eternal consequences to it, that the Holy Spirit, it says, is producing life in you. That Christ is living in you. Can I suggest to you this morning, that should have a huge impact on the way we view the fruit of the Spirit as we find it in ourselves and in those that we love. I love fruit. Think about it sometimes. It, It affects some of my choices in the day. I love oranges and peaches and grapes. I love kiwi. I've recently realized that I love kiwi. I only knew that within about the last 12 months. I do not properly appreciate the significance of finding the fruit of the Spirit growing as a display of spiritual life being grown in me. If the fruit of the Spirit evidences this life-giving work of the Spirit in me, In that sense, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, I'm not talking about becoming uh, more saved or anything like that. I'm talking about the principle of life at work. As I see the displays of the Spirit's work in my life, in that sense, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing myself becoming more alive. I mean, that's that's a big deal. If the fruit of the Spirit is the visible sign of that life, at work and growing in you. I wonder, are we properly excited or encouraged or interested as we see evidence of growth in things like joy, peace, patience with other people, gentleness in times in which it's very difficult to be gentle? 
I wonder how much more we will pursue those things as we stop to consider what they truly are. So Paul tells us the source of this new life. It's the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he tells us here the location of this new life, the location in which this new life is being lived. And this is interesting. It's being lived in the flesh. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. None of us will object to this notion that we're living this life still in a fallen world with fallen bodies. The inauguration of the age to come, which is what we have in the finished work of Christ, does not mean that evil or sin are eradicated, and it doesn't mean that our fleshly limitations are eradicated. We still live in our bodies. And that's the way he's using the word flesh here. He's not using it in the sense of sin, but simply in the sense of a bodily existence with all the continuing weaknesses that come with that. As long as I'm in the flesh in this sense, I will be absent from the Lord. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. It's very important for us to see what Paul's saying here in the middle of verse 20. The the true life that he finds within him is the result of the indwelling and working Holy Spirit. Uh, To return to language we used at the beginning of our time in Galatians, um, this is the life of the age to come. You remember we talked about the present evil age and the age to come? This new life that the Spirit is working in God's people is the life of the age to come. But Paul makes clear here, this is life right now that's lived out while I am still in this body. How do I live the life that I'm now living as a Christian in this sense? I do it by faith in the Son of God. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Remember that faith in Christ this whole time has been set apart from works of the law. These are two different paths of walking. I don't live out the life of this new life expecting it to be explained by or to come from my own strength. It means that I do it always recognizing that the growth of that life is going to come from him. It's going to be explained by him. And it will depend entirely upon him. Now we need to think in terms of application here for just a moment, even before we get to the end of our time. What does that mean for us? I mean, how will that actually show up in my life? This conscious awareness that the life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God. That means a few things. It means I will be asking him for it. Is this a part of your regular prayer life for yourself and for the people that you love? That this new life, which is growing, would grow. That you would see, that you would be so honored and blessed as to get to see evidence of the life that God is growing in his children. Do you want it? Do you wish that you could see more of it? Do you ask him for it? I will be asking him for it. It means that I will wait patiently on his timing. 
for it. If it comes from him, the timing of my growth in the fruit of the Spirit will come from him. Now, that is very, that's very much a protective thought. That protects me from becoming, how many of us have dealt with this even recently? This is, this is a part of the Christian battle. That protects me from becoming sinfully frustrated or discouraged in my battles against the flesh. What it does is it protects me from that and it allows me instead to be content, to simply continue walking forward, pursuing Christ-likeness. I know what I want. I know I wish that there were more of this in me on display now. I will, I will claw forward, as Paul will say elsewhere, but I will live my life patiently trusting his timing for these things. I grew up with parents who went through the Crown Financial Ministries uh, program, and part of that involves memorizing scripture in different places that relate to finances. And one verse that I heard often growing up was this one, steady plodding brings prosperity, hasty speculation brings poverty. Very relevant in the financial world but exactly what we're talking about here. If the timing is the Lord's, if the hope of it is the Lord's, if the certainty and the source of it is Him, I am set free then to simply, patiently walk forward. Steadily plodding. It also means that I will wait patiently on His timing in the lives of other people. I mean, just as this sets me free to patiently and joyfully endure and walk forward in my own life, I'm freed up then to bear with other people, uh, to be a person who's actually able to forgive others and to simply rejoice as I see the Spirit's work and timing. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Oh, how that would transform every sphere of relationship that the Lord would bring to us. Now notice how he ends this statement. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul ends this verse with a very simple statement as to the rationale behind this choice to live trusting the Son of God. What's the rationale behind such confidence? Am I justified in my trusting Him in this way? What's the rationale? He loved me. It's all the source of certainty that I need, that He loves me. But you notice, He didn't choose to say that Christ loves Him. He said Christ loved this is not a love that is an actionless love. He's not going to fail to finish the good work that he has started. He loved me in giving himself for me, laying his life down so that I might be able to die in him. I just love what one man, Tom Schreiner points out a connection here. I want to give him credit and to, read, to share with you what he says here. He's talking about the connection we see here between uh, Paul's life by faith and Jesus' love. Listen to what he says. 
Paul sees this love as extending to all Christians, but the individualistic emphasis must not be neglected. Faith in Christ can be sustained only where one is confident in God's love. Love in this sense is the fuel of faith. How will I walk forward with any confidence, any steadfastness, if I, if I, do, if I doubt that God's love has been poured out for me? Love is the fuel of faith. I think he's exactly right to see that connection. And I think it's the disconnection there that is responsible for so many of our battles with assurance. We must look to the work that Christ has done. We must look to the promises of God that tell us who he did that work for. He did that work for sinners who are not perfect and who continue to be imperfect, but who know and trust God who promised if we come to him, Broken, trusting in the finished work of another, he will in no ways cast you out. I cling to the promises of God who cannot lie. And I receive the love that is mine. If I do not do that, I can have no confidence. Love is the fuel of faith. Look now at verse 21. This is where he will wrap up what he's been arguing here. It's a simple statement to start this. I do not nullify the grace of God. Which seems like some sort of a shorthand for what they're being accused of, right? I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Calling the faithful, Jew or Gentile, to depart from the law and to put their faith in the finished work of Christ, that does no damage to the saving grace of God. Because as we saw last week, saving grace was not offered in the law to begin with. It was most certainly a grace to God's people. But now that Christ has come, that grace has produced its intended effect. And his point in this conclusion is clear and simple. If the law were intended as a means of attaining righteousness, Jesus didn't need to die. My friends, why did Jesus need to die? He needed to die because the wages of sin is death. And your sins merit you a death sentence. Rightly. And such is God's justice that no attempted good deeds will sway him from that perfect maintenance of righteousness and justice. And that's why in a very real sense, brothers and sisters this morning, I'm talking to believers, we never progress beyond the gospel. Because every day of our lives reminds us that our righteousness is found in another. It must be, or I am hopeless. I'll close our time this morning by sharing with you something that Martin Luther wrote. Martin Luther, more and more I think, I appreciate him. He would be someone that would probably make me feel uncomfortable regularly if I were hanging around with him. He is not afraid to pull punches. Listen to what he says in this regard. When you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by the grace of God without our own works, and then pretend that this is a snap for him, 
Well, then have no doubt that he has no idea of what he is talking about and probably will never find out. All those who do understand it, sense it like a wonderful taste or odor that they greatly desire. They hunger, thirst, and yearn for it more and more. And they never tire of hearing about it or dealing with it. May we never tire of the news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And may we each one day be so blessed by God, <coughs> so blessed by God as to be able to die, having lived to the end of our days by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. May God grant us that grace and mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we, we ask you this morning, Lord, to grant us that grace so that we would finish our race. I pray that for myself. I pray for my family. I pray for my church family this morning. Lord, that every one of us in this room would one day die trusting in the finished work of your Son, believing on him as our righteousness and the only hope for our justification. We thank you for him. We worship him this morning. And we ask you, Lord, through your spirit, to continue to work this salvation out in us. You, who is the one at work, grant us, Lord, the, the grace to see the fruit that you are producing. Help us not to diminish it or to find excuse for it. Help us to celebrate the sight of fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to be thankful for it, to rejoice. And give us the patience that we must have, Lord, as we walk through this life in the flesh. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting this week, we will end our time by standing and singing together a hymn of response to what God has given us in his word. So let's stand together to do that. My hope is found He is my light, my strength, my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What hearts of love, what depths of peace When fears are still, when striving cease my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith. This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid 
here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world in darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost his grip on me, for I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in his peace. We are dismissed.